For Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the key to transforming racial equality and justice here in the United States was through nonviolence. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, King notes how he came about a philosophy that led to a movement. In his early teens, King grew up abhorring not only segregation, but also the oppressive and barbarous acts that grew out of it. The lynchings, the nighttime rides of the KKK, police brutality, injustice, and the court system. King, in his own words, came perilously close to resenting all white people. In college and seminary, King began exploring the human condition, reading everything from Thoreau to Nietzsche. But then he came across the life and teachings of Gandhi. And up until this point, King thought that the ethics of Jesus, things like turn the other cheek or love your enemies, were only effective in individual relationships. But when racial groups and nations were in conflict, a more realistic approach seemed necessary. King would go on to say that Gandhi was the first person to transform Christian love into a powerful force for social change. He notes that Christ furnished the spirit and motivation while Gandhi furnished the method. King eventually arrived at the conclusion that would define the civil rights movement. Social reform would not come through violent acts of power, but through nonviolent acts of love. He would say that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. King embraced a power found only in powerlessness. This morning, we continue our sermon series, Lessons in Carols, by looking at the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, this city, this township, insignificant in the eyes of Rome. It serves as the focal point of Old Testament prophecy, the birth of Christ, and of course, our song for this morning. And Bethlehem as a city, it represents a power found only in powerlessness. Something unique about the good news of who Jesus is for us. One scholar notes that by virtue of its divine choice for the Messiah's birth, the most insignificant place will bring forth the most preeminent person. Bethlehem leads us to a gospel as we understand it, both empties and fills. Empties and fills. And then the next few moments as we follow along in the scriptures of our Lord, I invite you to consider how you might be feeling powerless this morning. And how you even feel about being powerless. Second, after the sermon, we're going to sing this carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I invite you to note how in poetic terms this song describes a power that arrives amidst powerlessness. Third, after taking a few minutes to explore the history of this carol, I'll flesh out the implications of what this means for the gospel. And if you're new to faith, if you're new to Christianity, if you're just checking all of this out for the first time, uh, we sometimes here in the church use a lot of Christian words, one of them being the gospel and you might be asking, what in the world does the gospel mean? 
Well, any time in the ancient world a royal figure uh, was victorious or gave birth to an heir, for example, an announcement would go out, an announcement of good news. And in Greek, that term translated into English is the word gospel. It means good news, good news that goes forth. And when we talk about gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're talking about the announcement that went out, not about Caesar's son, but about the son of the one true living God. And when we talk about gospel faith, it's giving your loyalty over to Jesus, this son of God, rather than any other ruler in this world. So we begin with a little history it's behind O Little Town of Bethlehem. The song was written by Reverend Phillips Brooks. Brooks was born in Boston in 1835, educated at Harvard, and served as an Episcopal priest at Holy Trinity in Philadelphia. He was considered a dynamic preacher in his day, but one who preached forcefully against slavery in the Civil War, he ministered to African-American soldiers who were camped just outside the city. And he advocated for equal rights of freed men. And after the war was over, Brooks made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, where he visited Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. And his visit included a horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, where traveling through those fields, he imagined the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Three years after that trip, reflecting on this experience, he wrote a poem for the children's ministry of his church. And he asked one of his worship leaders, Lewis Redner, to put the song to music in preparation for a special Christmas service in the Sunday school department. Lewis Redner is a unique character in this story. He was a wealthy real estate broker who helped lead worship at his church as well as oversee children's discipleship. And under his leadership, the kids' ministry, the attendance at Sunday school went from 36 kids to 1,000 kids in a 19-year period. We are well on our way here at Oaks Parish. <laughs> We're on that trajectory, I guarantee it. <clears throat> so as this Christmas service approached, Brooks followed up with Redner on a Friday to see if the music would be set for Sunday, which was the first day of rehearsal. And for some reason, Redner was really struggling with coming up with this tune that he would set to the poem. In the middle of the night on Saturday evening, Redner says that he was roused from sleep, hearing an angel strain whispering in my ear, and seizing a piece of music paper, I jotted down the treble of the tune as we now have it. And on Sunday morning before going to church, he filled in the harmony. And after performing the carol that Christmas, a local bookstore owner printed it on a leaflet. And that leaflet eventually made its way into hymnals. Redner reflected, neither Mr. Brooks nor I ever thought the carol or the music would live beyond that Christmas of 1868. Powerlessness characterizes the story of this song. The lyrics portray powerless members of society, shepherds and a young Jewish couple, sojourning, gathering around the manger of the powerful one. 
The ministry even of Phillips Brooks was one marked by service to the powerless. African American soldiers and children in his congregation. Brooks was a great preacher in his day. But he didn't fashion himself as the teaching pastor of his church with a role limited to the preparation of sermons. Redner was immensely successful in business, but his calling in life was made complete by ministry of music and ministry to children. And think about it, both men could have easily embraced success as this world defines success. Instead, both of them emptied themselves out for the sake of others because of the power of the gospel in their lives. And finally, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this song finally comes together. Not because of the creative genius of either one of these men, but because of the power of God in the middle of the night. The carol portrays the power of the gospel that both empties and fills. We see this right out of the gate in verse 1. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. The emptiness, yet, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It gives to us a gospel that empties and a gospel that fills. So let me spend the next few minutes talking about both of those realities, the same side of a single coin. The gospel of Jesus empties. This carol is anchored in two passages of scripture that come from very different time periods, but have very similar dynamics. First, in Micah chapter 5, we find ancient Israel. And ancient Israel consumed with itself. Last week, we followed the story of King Ahaz in Jerusalem, who in the face of threats of armies from the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaz chose to call upon the king of Assyria rather than call upon God. And as a result, God announced that Ahaz would get his wish And Jerusalem would be given over to Assyria. Well, as we come to Micah chapter 5, the story continues. It continues with the son of Ahaz, King Hezekiah. And during the reign of Hezekiah on paper, Judea seemed to be doing great, that southern kingdom. You know, in Hezekiah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians just a few years prior, but the southern kingdom had survived. Elite landholders in Judea were making lots of money. Hezekiah had made a treaty with Assyria to avoid destruction. There were numerous military preparations being made, even in the case, in the happenstance, that Assyria would attack. Everything seemed to be going great. But Micah declares that Israel's strength was not what it seemed. The affluence of Israel was actually the result of wealthy landowners exploiting lower classes. Jerusalem wasn't really secure against invading forces. Assyria could have conquered them in a moment. People trusted in false gods instead of resting in the promises of Yahweh. 
So Micah declares that the people of God were being destroyed from within. And as a result, they would be destroyed from without at the hands of Assyria. It reminds me, this dynamic, it reminds me of the famous line by political cartoonist Walt Kelly, we found the enemy and he is us. The real enemy wasn't without, it was within. The chariots, the strongholds, the religious pretending. God will work through Assyria to render Israel powerless. And this will be for their benefit. Well, in Luke chapter 2, fast forward in time, the Roman Empire is also consumed with itself. Caesar Augustus, we find, has sent out a decree that a census should be taken. And sure, this was likely to help gauge the needs for social services within the empire or to help with military conscription. But perhaps more than anything, it was for the glory of Caesar so that he could count all the people and say to himself, look at this empire, how great it is. Caesar Augustus, originally known as Gaius Octavius, was the adopted son, you might remember, of Julius Caesar, who formed the great triumvirate with Mark Antony and Marcus Lepidus. And after defeating a senatorial army led by Brutus and Cassius, Octavius rose to prominence. And the Senate in Rome granted him the titles of Augustus, and princeps, which means first citizen. And his authority moved Rome from a republic to an empire. And after his death in 14 BC, the Roman Senate declared him to be a god. So if there's any good news, any gospel that's going out in the first century, it normally would have had something to do with Caesar. His victories, his policies, his accomplishments, his lineage. But by verse 4 of Luke chapter 2, Luke moves the story away from Caesar. Away from Rome. Away from empire. And there's a bit of irony here. We find the empire is consumed with fulfilling Caesar's decree to the point that there's actually no lodging for Mary and Joseph as they arrive in Bethlehem. But as the story follows the plight of this young Jewish couple to this backwater town of Bethlehem, the history that Luke records is being emptied of Caesar's power. A few months ago, I began to notice garage creep. You know what I'm talking about. All kinds of junk just accumulating in the garage. An old dishwasher that I had just replaced at the beginning of the fall. Boxes from furniture. Football gear. Boxes that needed to be sorted so that they could be placed up in the attic. The space became so filled, it was hard to find any floor space to do anything helpful. So as one does, we had to take the time to clear it out, sort it out, to make the run to the dump in order to make the space useful again. And this is a picture of how Jesus is working in Micah's day. This is a picture of what God is doing through the ministry of his son. Perhaps this is a picture of what God is doing in your life 
right now. When Jesus is at work in our heart, he has a way of emptying out all of those things that are destroying us from within. All of those things that crowd him out of the narrative of our story. And so as we think about the gospel's power to empty us, what is it that needs to be emptied in your own heart? What would it look like to join God in making that run to the dump, so to speak? Just after the sermon, we're going to confess together. And this is why we confess together as the people of God each and every week. is because we want to join Jesus in emptying out anything in our heart that's getting in the way of the life that he would have for us. Let me ask a more corporate question. What is it that needs to be emptied out in the American church? Let me give you a little hot take here this morning. You heard it here. I think this next election cycle is going to be an absolute disaster. Nuclear meltdown. And here's the question. How is the church going to respond to that? What bearing is our life in Christ going to have amidst a culture in chaos? What does that mean for the things that need to be emptied out in our church? Because I think for far too long, we've been relying on power, on influence, and on success. And I think that God wants more for us. He wants more for his people. We come across here the other side of that coin, a gospel that fills And if you've ever spent time in quiet meditation, maybe you've even been so bold to go on a a silent retreat, maybe just in the mundane, you've been driving down the road and you turned off the music or you weren't listening to a podcast and you were just sitting there in silence, you know how scary emptiness can be. We don't want to be empty. I experienced this in a profound way my freshman year in college. God began an emptying work in my life, in my friendships, in my academic pursuits, in my whole vision for life. And I was so afraid to be emptied. I was so afraid to hand all of these things over to God. But I was haunted by him. I had joined a discipleship group with other men. And that fall, we were studying the Beatitudes And within just a few weeks, I had a profound spiritual breakthrough hearing from the Lord, specifically from Matthew chapter 5, 6, was just kind of like the center of the Beatitudes, at least in my opinion. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Mary says something nearly identical in her Magnificat. I began that fall of my freshman year to discover what it was like to have Jesus and to have him alone and also what it meant to be alone with him in my life. It's an indescribable joy to have him fill the emptiness. And that's how the power of this gospel works in the midst of our emptiness. The power of the gospel is powerful Because we are filled with God himself as we look to Jesus in faith. 
And so let me get a little bit practical about the gospel's filling power and the effect that it will have on your life. Three things. First, as the gospel powers, as the gospel's power fills you with the presence of God, the power of sin will diminish because your fear will diminish. It's an interesting relationship. The power of sin will diminish because your fear will diminish. I'm not saying that in Christ we somehow become sinless in this lifetime. But as the junk is cleared out of your heart, it is replaced with a greater power, the power of his presence. We have to make a choice. Do we want God or do we want this other stuff filling our life? You know, that's the decision of Joseph in Luke 2. Mary's pregnancy would be a scandal in the community. It was already becoming scandalous. Was Joseph going to choose God's promise or was Joseph going to choose his own reputation? That's a decision. And Joseph ultimately chose to be filled by Jesus. This is the power described in verse 3 of the carol. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And notice how Micah, long before the day of Jesus, describes this very effect in chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. This powerful one from eternity past is going to come and be manifest in this insignificant town, at least in the eyes of Rome. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, meaning that God is going to give Israel this time period of exile until she who is in labor has brought forth, meaning Mary. And then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be the one of peace. When Jesus comes and makes his dwelling among us, the power of sin will diminish because our fear will diminish. He becomes our security. Secondly, the gospel's filling power will make you other-centered rather than self-centered. In the days of Micah, why was economic injustice so prevalent? Why were people... Uh, working so hard to obtain the favor of other deities? Why was so much money being spent on military preparation? It's insecurity. In first century Rome, why did Caesar ultimately carry out a census? His own insecurity. Insecurity inevitably makes us self-centered. We work and we work and we work in our own strength to try to provide ourselves with security. And as a result, the people and the resources around us have a job to do. Namely, to save us. 
We use our friendships, our career, our money, our position in the organization, our stature in the community to try to find affirmation that we're okay. In Micah chapter 5, the Messiah's kingdom would grow through a remnant of people. Those disciples who would follow him both in the day of Jesus and today who were secured by this king and this king alone. And notice how Micah describes the ability of the disciples of this king to be other-centered because of the security that he provides. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob surrounded by many peoples shall be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not depend upon people or wait for any mortal. And the description goes on to talk about how this remnant would live victoriously out of the security that Christ the King provides. Filled with this gospel's power, you will become other-centered. Lastly, the gospel's filling power will make your life an adventure. And I really, really, really mean this. An adventure above and beyond anything that you could have ever asked for, anything that you could have ever imagined, because this power is at work within you. When we fill our life with things other than God, it naturally puts us on the defense. We've got to protect these things at all costs. We can't take risks. But when the security of Christ is born in us, it gives us a radical ability for adventure to follow Jesus wherever he may lead. In the days of Micah, the fragile treaty that Hezekiah made with Assyria would eventually fail. And Hezekiah was faced with his own decision. Would he trust God or like his father, would he trust in something else to try to protect himself? Hezekiah fortunately told, uh, chose trust in God. In the middle of that very night, God struck 185,000 Assyrian troops with an illness that forced the armies to retreat. Mary and Joseph, it, it looked like that they were simply one of the millions obeying Caesar's decree. But in reality, and this is what Luke would really have us see, they were being led along by another story, much bigger, way greater than Caesar and Rome. And because they would join God in that path of faith, that adventure, they became the parents of God. Can you imagine <laughs> being the parents of God himself. Advent is an invitation to stop playing defense and for us to be caught up in a much bigger, a much larger story, the story of God in this world. The gospel of Bethlehem leads us to empty ourselves of all this other power so that we might be filled with God's power. And as we do so, the power of sin will diminish because your fear will diminish. You will become other-centered rather than self-centered. And life will be an adventure as you're carried along in this story. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, 
read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.